Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Very much appreciate you listening. And I hope you're taking in the funkiest theme song in podcast history. Not just comedy podcast history, but in podcast history. There could be a a podcast about funk music, and it's not going to be as funky as this one. There's a, there's a podcast about Prince, and they didn't use a Prince song. They used some sort of fake poor man's version of a Prince song, <laughs> and it's not as funky as this. You know, that's really disappointing as a Prince fan. It's very disappointed in their theme song. All right, enough about other podcasts that I'm not going to name by names, but mostly because I don't remember the name. This is the There It Is podcast, and we do tend to focus on comedy, but I do feel that if you are outside of comedy, you can still gain something from these episodes. And this is a great episode for that because we have Hannah Chase on. She's an improviser and instructor here at the Magnet Theater, and she's a very popular instructor. And I think if you are an improviser, you'll get something out of this. But if you are an instructor of any kind, I think you can learn from her experience as an instructor. So there's that to look forward to. She's really great. I learned a lot about her, and I can't wait to share that with you. And there's also a big moment today, as I mentioned last week. I used the word malleable in this interview. And today, we find out if I used it correctly. (laughs) I'm still not totally certain that I did. So let's get right to it, folks. Here's my chat and my use of the word malleable with Hannah Chase. Hannah, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me. You're a big get because, uh, you know, this being such a, this podcast has become such a New York podcast and that (laughs) pretty much everyone I've had on uh, in the last, I would say, year, most of them have been New York people and and people who work in improv especially um and a lot of magnet people (laughs) so you being such a big figure in the magic in the magnet world uh it's a it's really an honor to have you on oh well it's an honor to be on i'm psyched to talk about improv yeah so yeah let's talk about improv you started in 2002 with improv wow wow good Good research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there'll be plenty of questions that'll uh, that'll totally negate that compliment. Ah. But um, <laughs> no, but yeah, you started in 2002. I imagine that was at UCB because were they the only game in town at that point? They were. Yeah. So i I started. I took a class at the UCB. Yeah, in in the summer of 2002. Um, I did, uh, actually I did like 101 and 201 both in that summer mm. and it was really, um, like the first time I'd ever done anything like that uh, and it was really cool. And the theater was not open that long by 2002, correct? 
Yeah, I don't think so. It was it was relatively new. I feel like now if you live in New York City, like everyone has obviously either heard of the UCB, but like so many people have just taken an improv class. It's like mm-hmm. very normal to meet people who have tried it for a variety of reasons. But mm-hmm. at that point, it was really not as sort of standard or known. Um, but I had gotten into my like college improv group prior to that without doing any without having done any improv and I like spent the whole first year of college just like totally terrified even though I had gotten on this team and so uh the summer after my freshman year is when I took those classes and it was um it was really like helpful to give me some sort of a like a framework or proper education in improv and then I was able to like go back to school and feel more confident and comfortable on my team. Oh, that's excellent. And also, you were a film and theater major in school. Look at that. Good <laughs> research there. Yes, I was. Um, so I had done, like, prior to, um, like, I had never done improv, but I had done a lot of sort of adjacent activities. Right. So, like, done theater, and I was a dancer for a lot of my childhood and, like, teenagehood, and I played piano and I played jazz piano and I improvised as a jazz piano player. And so I had like done certain things that were related to improv, but never improv. Wow. I didn't know about the jazz piano, but what if I had like was able to crack that in my research? (laughs) That would have been really, like (laughs) truly, truly impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I couldn't have gotten that before the interview, but um, that's really interesting. I'm always fascinated with the performers that I that I have seen here and their background, because so many of them do have, like, since childhood, some performance uh, element to their life. And I, it obviously has to help inform you in, in various ways, but also just, like, get you comfortable to being in front of people and performing. Yeah, definitely. And I think... There are certain, it's interesting because there are certain elements of my like performance background that helped me in improv. And I think there were certain elements of my performance background that improv sort of like saved me from. That that sounds like very, very intense. But jazz piano in particular was something that I had done very seriously for my whole life up until college. I started taking piano lessons when I was four. I was like very serious about it in the sense that like people in my life, you know, thought I was going to be a professional like pianist. And toward the end of high school, when I was really, really like playing all the time and doing it very seriously, I got really weird and neurotic about it. And like very, I felt a lot of pressure about it. And, um, I think it became like a sort of paralyzing amount of pressure. So it, it wasn't really very fun. And, Mm. um, and I got really like nervous every time I had to perform or play in front of people. And so improv in a way was like this amazing, joyful, uh, like life changing thing to find because you can't be perfectionistic about improv in the same way that you can be perfectionistic about most other medium for performance. Right. Because Mm -hmm. like the nice thing about improv is you do a scene, um, it might be great. If it's great, it's still over. If it's terrible, it's over. And so it doesn't matter. And you like get a new try a few minutes later to do another scene. And I think the sort of freedom to like do something that might work, might not work where there's much less pressure to like perfect it. Mm -hmm. um, Like that was really like pretty significant for me. Oh yeah. 
after having performing, having been performing for a long time in a way that made me like very obsessive and perfectionistic improv was like really freeing. That's a really interesting and, and great perspective because there's still some of us who find ways to be perfectionist about, uh, <laughs> about performing improv, but you're right. It does not lead to the same level uh, that dance or mm-hmm. playing piano or playing any instrument would be because mm-hmm. it can't really. I mean, right. every scene is so different that, you know, there's so many times when someone can give a, a instructor can give a note about how to do something and uh, something that didn't work. And then the very next scene, that very thing the instructor said, don't do is what makes it work, you know, like that. So it's hard to really be that strict about anything, but dance, it's, there is one way, you know, or like piano, like there's music theory. It doesn't, you can't bend it. You you can't make an F sharp, something that it's not. And, or or a time signature, something that it's not like, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Totally. It can be like, you can make a, a black and white, like very clear mistake. Yeah. Those areas. And I feel like in improv, like you, you can't really make a mistake. Yeah. Not too often. Yeah, yeah, it's incredibly hard to like make a proper mistake in improv because <laughs> right. a like you can have a not a like a scene that's not great, but that's not really a mistake. You know, yeah. you can feel bad about it, but you mm-hmm. have a, a chance very soon after to like do another scene. But also in a scene itself, um, like m- pretty much anything I say, with the exception of like a few things, I guess we can always yes and it to make it like a fun part of the scene. Mm-hmm. And so there's less opportunity to say like the perfect right thing. And as a result, <laughs> there's also like less pressure if you don't say the absolute like perfect right thing, because there usually isn't a perfect right thing. Right. This kind of leads me in and, and you know, I, I'm going to have to jump forward a lot here from 2002, but <laughs> <laughs> you are one of the big teachers at Magnet, and you were previously until the last month the mm-hmm. Megawatt director. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of that, I mean, all of that is just, well, the exception of Megawatt director, there's a lot more to it than this, but uh, in teaching and in directing, so much of that is guiding performance. So when there are these moments where, well, that's not a black and white wrong thing, but something didn't work about that. How do you coach or, or direct people when dealing with those sort of situations where, I don't know, it's kind of a gray area, but this still just didn't work. And we're yeah. trying to pinpoint something here. Yeah, totally. So it's a good, really good question. And I think I have... Um, a lot of thoughts about like coaching and directing and things that maybe are similar among other teachers and coaches and maybe things that are different. Mm -hmm. So I find that, um, when I'm giving direction to students, well, I guess it's different. So like we can bucket that into, because primary, I teach a number of classes at the magnet, but Mm -hmm. I mostly teach level one Mm -hmm. and in level one, like you can pretty clearly like in the moment side coach with a small thing just because like they don't know how to do scenes. It's not like they're making a mistake, but they, uh, they're sort of falling back on like very inexperienced choices. And sometimes those inexperienced choices lead to like the most wonderful scenes because Uh they're inexperienced in a way that like they don't know what not to do. And so they're doing, they make choices that are like, that's delightful. And like more experienced <laughs> supervisor would sort of think of that as like the bad choice, but it makes the scene so fun. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they are making choices that are like, 
like one thing I see a lot in level one, which is totally natural. It's like people will fall back on conflict Mm -hmm. and like stopping action, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll be in the middle of a scene and it like someone, you know, they're doing some activity. And a lot of times students will want to be like, stop, let's talk about this first. Or like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be doing this. Or like, (laughs) why did you take me here? It's like a very easy side coach to be like, just be into the activity. (laughs) Just like, like what you're doing. (laughs) partner. And so it's not like they made a mistake, right. but I, I know that that scene is going to feel more difficult for them mm-hmm. um, if they are continuing to like have conflict and sort of stop the forward momentum of the scene. Um, and they don't know necessarily that like what will make that scene more fun mm-hmm. and easy is to just be like psyched to like do the activity or to like like your scene partner. Um, so those are sort of small side coaches. I wouldn't call those moves that they're making mistakes per se, right. but. Right, because a, a more experienced improviser probably could go along with that. But yes. when there's one thing going on in the scene, and then and and half of the people on stage are saying, "Let's not do this one thing," right. <laughs> then it, right. it, it stalls the scene. That's the lesson that you're teaching them: is not yeah, to stall. and it's it's less like they're doing a bad thing, and I want to like fix it for them. It's more like I see them struggling in the scene. Like I know the scene is going to be harder for them, and I want to give them the small tools that. I think they need in order to help them in the scene. So it is most, I mean, it might just be sort of a semantic difference, but it it feels to me less like correcting mistake and more like equipping them with a a tool or some sort of like information or knowledge that will make improv easier for them because they're still learning. They don't know these things yet. Right. And my goal is to make that scene fun and easy with experienced performers. It's a little bit different because they do have like all of those tools. And so, um, you find a lot more like of those sort of gray areas like, well, this scene didn't quite work. And there are like a bunch of reasons that could potentially be for why that scene didn't work. I find when I am in those situations as a coach or a director, um, I, I tend to shy away from giving notes that are like in this, in this scene, like you should have done X, Y, Z or X, Y, Z because I don't find those notes terribly helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I, they sound I, very yeah. much like my, not necessarily my way or the highway, but it's very much like a, there was one right choice to make, which yes. is not true. Yeah, exactly. There's never one right choice. Also, like, um, you can't go back and fix that. Like, that's not helpful feedback. <laughs> right. Be like, well, you should have done this. It's like, okay, well, I didn't do it. So it's great. not a play. You're not going to do that scene okay. again. And like you, you know, I think you brought this up earlier. It's like sometimes the exact piece of feedback that you get based on one scene um, will be the total opposite of what you do in the next scene. And that'll be what makes that scene work. So I think like those scene by scene notes are generally less helpful. Not always, but generally. Um, When I'm coaching or directing, I try to give notes based on like patterns of behavior that I observe more than like this is one small thing. So it's like if I notice in general... um, that like you are are trying to sort of like plan and like plan the narrative of your scene ahead of time and it's taking you sort of out of the moment and so you're not able to like respond to small things that are happening with your scene partner or you're prioritizing like the story of the scene over the relationship um I'll, I'll sort of try to make those observations and and cite a specific example or two so that it's clear like what you know, what I'm talking about and like how to potentially change it moving forward. But I find those are more helpful notes. So it's, it's, um, more like of a, of a general behavior and less of a, like you said this in this scene. And I think that was bad. 
Right. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. I totally get that. I mean, I think it's, I understand how someone could say, but that would be really hard to coach that way. But it just takes, I guess, experience. I mean, you've been doing improv since 2002, and then also other forms of performance art, um, you know, like a lot of theater background must help inform you about uh, presenting scenes. But, um, you know, that's essentially what it is. You know, it's just there are all these, like I said, there are a bunch of different ways that a scene can work. Yeah. And it it's oftentimes dependent on just the way this particular person thinks that would make it work. And, you know, I've, I've seen the sort of notes where it's like the scene went off track here when, you know, this mm-hmm. person made an observation that uh, wasn't there for us in the audience. Right. And that's the most absolute you can probably get in improv. Mm-hmm. But you mm-hmm. really can't speak in absolutes when it's something that is so malleable that like improv is, is you know, you can use it different ways. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone also like it's so dependent on because you are making something up on the spot in that moment that will never happen again. It's also very dependent on like how you're feeling that, that day, how much energy you have. Um, like, you know, scenes, we all have good days in improv and we all have bad days in improv. And so I just tend to like take the general approach of, um, I, I try to like, I'm probably a coach that gives fewer notes. Um, I try not to like give a ton of notes. And if I'm coaching it, I mean, I think this is different. If I'm coaching a team once, mm-hmm. I'll probably give more notes because it's like the only time I'm going to see them. But if I'm working with a team or like a show, over a period of time, I try to um, choose exercises that I think are gonna like hit at hit on the things that I want to work on, um, and give some sort of guidance and notes around like things that I'm generally seeing, either as a pattern or in specific scenes. But I'm not someone who's gonna like um, move by move note every single thing that's happened like in every single scene over the course of a show. Because for me as an improviser, that is never helpful. Interesting. I and I I love that. One thing that I do find interesting is that you if if you're only with someone one or like a team one time that you would give more notes. Is that because <laughs> you're saying um uh well, this is the only time I'll be here, so here are all the things I observe, take it or leave it or I mean just because some people in that situation might have the opposite. They might say like, well, I'm never going to be here again or anytime soon, right. so why don't I just like mention a couple of things I know. <laughs> totally. And I think it's less like I'm not I'm, I'm never again going to be like, all right, I'm going to know every single move that you made in the scene. <laughs> but if I'm only with a team once, I don't have the ability to be like, all right, I have observed this thing that I want to work on through exercise. I mean, if, and maybe I will like shift what I was planning to do with that team while I'm coaching them to shift sort of the exercises I'm running on that day. But I like don't have very much time to develop things over time. So I feel like in those instances, a lot of what I'll do is be like, okay, so this is sort of one general thing or like one sort of pattern that I noticed you as an improviser are doing, or you as a team are doing, um, like moving forward, here's what I would work on if I were you. Mm-hmm. So um, whether it's like you, I've been subbing for their regular coach. It's like, okay, next week, like um, I might work on X, Y, Z with your coach. Um, or it's usually not just like a, a one-time thing. But I feel like if, yeah, if you're, if you're, 
if you're with a team for a short period of time, the only way you get to communicate and the only way you get to like affect change is in your notes mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like in working on things that are sort of like longer, longer span. You are one of the people, like a lot of people I've met here have, uh, they've, they've, I think most people have studied at multiple theaters here. Um, but you're one of the few who were who was there as early as 2002 that mm-hmm. I've spoken to. A lot of people was a, maybe even several years later. The um, I don't want to say the culture was different than at UCB in 2002 in a bad way. It's just that it was a young theater. And any young theater is going to have a different culture than when they've been at it for 15 plus years like they have. Totally. And I wonder... You know, having seen coaching styles and teaching styles that early and then getting involved with Magnet, were you involved with Magnet from the beginning? Not quite. I I think I took my first class at the Magnet in 2007. Mm-hmm. So that was like a, two years after, right? Did the Ma- I don't, I should know this. <laughs> it was, uh, it's something around like 2015, 16 that Magnet started, I believe. Or was you mean it 2005 or six? Uh, yes, that's what it yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> Magnet is a four year old theater. No, it's like a 14 ish year old theater, right? Yeah. So I think I probably came like a year and a half, two years in. Mm-hmm. So you got to see two theaters early in their development. And they also were developing in different directions. Right. Um, so I imagine a lot of that helped inform you on coaching styles, too. Totally. Yeah. And I and my my philosophy on coaching has also like changed Evolved a yourself, lot yeah. over time. Yeah. I've had a ton of coaches. I've had great coaches. I've had not as great coaches. I've had coaches with different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also like. This, I'm just giving you a very general, vague answer, but like coaching no. styles differ based on your level, right? So mm-hmm. like the people that coached my like 201 practice group were coaching in a different way than the people who coached my megawatt teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, like as a young coach, I probably gave a lot more notes because I, I probably perceived that as like the way I could be taken seriously. Like I think a lot of young professionals, whether it's an improv or whatever, um, it's like when you're first starting out, we tend to be like very prescriptive and like want to demonstrate how much we know, or I don't know if I, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but I felt that way oh, as, yeah. as a young person in general, <laughs> like in order to seem knowledgeable, you have to like get all your knowledge across. Oh, that's certainly what I did when I was coaching back yeah. uh, in South Carolina and, yeah. and not necessarily a, a conscious decision. It's just, you know, right, right, right. You know, just something you end up doing to be like, I, I belong here. Yeah. I should totally. be teaching this. Right. And yeah, it's not, it's, it, you're totally right. It's not conscious. Like, I don't think I made that choice. Um, it was more like, um, I just said everything that I observed. Like, I said everything <laughs> on my mind because I was like, oh, yeah, this will all be helpful and well received. And over time, I think I, was able to see like what kind of notes worked and what kind of notes didn't work. And obviously I still am able to modify that and shift that based on the audience that I'm working with. But in general, like I have moved toward a a sort of philosophy of coaching that is a little bit like less is more Mm -hmm. um, because I observed that that worked better over time. Yeah. I think uh, I love that there's so many different teaching styles at magnet because 
you know, I've had, I'm, I'm the nerd who likes to take notes. So when someone does have a lot to say, I just love trying to write all of that down. I've, have not been in one of your classes. I took Rick's level one, mm-hmm. uh, and he's someone who has who says a lot. He says it quickly, and so like, I just found like I don't know. There's a lot of note taking in his class <laughs> because like his sentences are, are like dense with a lot of uh, of like good advice, good improv oh. advice, and so I'm like writing a lot in there. And then I had uh, teachers who. What, took the approach of I'll mention a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any one way that every student would, you know, be able to love. You know, like there's just that's just impossible. How do you manage when there, you know, maybe a student does want a little bit more information, or maybe this a student was like, "Hey, I didn't like this. Why isn't the teacher calling it out that this other person did?" XYZ in the scene. How do you manage those different personality types and, and what the, the different types of students that are right. in the class? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think you're never going to be able to please everyone right, and you're right. never going to be everyone's like favorite, right? I, I think I again, like when I first started teaching, I was like, I want to be the best teacher. I want to be everyone's favorite teacher. And then I, and, and in doing that, you sort of like water yourself down a little bit. Cause it's, there's no way to please everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm going to have a different style from Rick, from Lewis, from Ilana, for, like from everyone at the magnet. Like we all have different strengths and some people will resonate more with like one of our styles and some people will resonate more with someone else's style. So I have tried or I have slowly stopped like trying to sort of cater to every single style because I think it's not quite possible. I'm always happy as a teacher to like have more in-depth conversations with people. So like, and, and you know, I want to also be clear that it's not like I'm saying nothing in class. Oh, right. Um, no, like, yeah. I, I still am like giving people feedback and direction, but I probably don't, um, like I don't share, I don't talk as much about the like philosophy of improv. Mm as like say Lewis and I like, you know, loved Lewis as a teacher. I've always loved his teacher. He's just like pours wisdom out constantly. (laughs) It's amazing. I love it. Yeah. It really is like unreal. (laughs) I love it. I can't do that. Like that's just not the way I teach. That's not my strength. Um, whereas like, I feel like then I have sort of probably things that are, that I do that like Lewis would feel uncomfortable doing, right? Like I'm probably much more of a, like an energizing and like I'm I I think I'm well suited for level one because I I like really love to like get people psyched and uh like feel supported and feel safe and I think like that probably isn't as interesting to Lewis so like I think we have different you know we have different things that we're good at um Mm -hmm. so anyway that's I'm answering I very like I've had a circuitous answer what was your original question oh how do I cater to different styles Mm um I think that I'm always happy to have individual conversations with people and I try to um, like I try to sort of notice over the course of class like what kind of questions people are asking and Mm. what kind of things they want to talk about or they want more information about it and sort of change my approach slightly. In terms of um, you know being in a scene or being in a class where maybe two people do something and um, one person like didn't like the thing that the other person did and I didn't call it out like I I think it's rare that 
people let me know that a, mm. but I can, I mean, I'm, I know it happens. Um, and I, I try to, um, if people ask about it, usually I, and, and it is something that I think this is hard to think of like in the abstract, but let's say a student did something in a class that like, wasn't great, wasn't a great move, but like, wasn't pro- problematic enough for me to side coach. Mm. Um, usually I've made that decision because I think like there are other things that this student needs to work on. There are other things that like we've focused on as a class, right? If someone like in week two makes a, a, sort of weird choice about something that I know we're going to cover in the next class. Like I probably won't dig into it because like they don't maybe have the tools and skills to have made the better choice. And so I'm like using my judgment in each one of those situations. It's not always right. Obviously, like I'm sure sometimes I miss things that I should have side noted or side coached or I, or I know things that I maybe could have let go. Um, but I try to like trust my own judgment on that. And when students ask about it, I'm happy to like talk, talk more about it. Um, but I find that often, uh, people are like impatient with each other and they want Mm -hmm. like everyone to do the right thing. Um, and like not every, everyone can't do the right thing in an early class. And like, you sort of have to be patient with how, how you help those people like develop various skills. They Mm -hmm. can't develop all of them at once. So a lot of when I'm choosing whether to note something or not, is like, how much can I throw at the student at this point? Right. And then, I mean, there's so much, it's more complicated and I think people talk about it and, and uh, just to touch on that because you, you know, you, you, you're referencing it. There's no way for any one person to understand how a room full of 16 people will individually respond to something. Like there's something right. that could offend me that wouldn't offend anyone else in the room. Right. And so I can't expect all of them to, understand that I would take it that way or that I have taken it that way and then say something about it. And I, and, and I know some people say like, well, they just didn't understand because maybe they're not a person of color or they're not uh, this or that. And sure, but that doesn't mean they screwed up either. Like there's a little bit of grace and patience that I can, and just also just like practicality not everybody's the same the whole reason we talk about having different people or having diversity is because of the fact that not everyone thinks the same way so i can't assume based on that basis i can't assume that other people will understand where i'm coming from or, or what will affect me and how it will affect me yeah and i do think that like what you're talking about right now which is like someone saying something that offends someone else is a mm-hmm. behavior i am like very on the lookout for. So like when it comes to things like I'll side coach or note, um, if I find that people are doing things that are like inappropriate, offensive, Mm -hmm. um, racist, sexist. Right. The obvious things you can point out, but there's some things that, you know, you may not have noticed. Right. Totally. And, and like, you know, I'm trying, but I, I find that like, if you were a student or anyone who was a student who raised their hand and was like, this offended me in some way, I'm much more likely to, uh, like, I'm very, I want to learn and I want to hear and, like, value that opinion as opposed right. to you being like, this person um, made a bad choice in the scene. Exactly. And so when I was talking earlier, I feel like I was imagining someone criticizing someone's improv and oh, that I feel okay. like I'm less, I, I feel more like, well, I trust my own judgment there as opposed to someone being like, this person did a thing that like they used a word that offended me or they like made it, they pimped me into a choice that I feel like was, um, sort of stereotyping. 
and in those cases, like I am, I think of myself as like a constant student and I'm always trying to like learn to be more aware and more on the lookout for all of that behavior. And I appreciate that. And I, I, you know, I think sometimes there is obviously an overlap, like somebody's um, maybe more bigoted perspective can end up making the, uh, you know, they end up making a choice in an improv scene that's like a bad improv choice or not, but right. also has this like layer of, of uh, undercurrent of offense to it. Um, and those sort of situations sometimes can be hard because someone might think, well, is this person saying that because of the type of person they are and they just don't get other kinds of people? Or were they just trying to make uh, humor out of real life and just fumbled with that? And that's that's a really tough situation to, I imagine, to to coach and to address, because that's when you really start getting into like where people are just uh, in in their perspective. Absolutely. I mean, totally. And such a we could spend like two hours or more than that talking just about this. I think about this Mm -hmm. literally every day. Yeah. Um, And yeah, because it's also a challenge I find particularly as a level one teacher, because so much of my goal is to like get people comfortable to just like say whatever comes out of their mouth. Like it's, you know, everyone comes in, they're very nervous. Um, they're overthinking everything. It's hard just to like loosen them up. And then, so you're, you're both encouraging them to like think less before they speak, but still like think before you speak. And Right. If like someone ha- comes from a different background and it's like more bigoted and they like say something that's bigoted, like I, that's not the kind of loosening up that I want. Exactly, right? Yeah. So it is like a sort of fine line between getting them to be so, you know, comfortable enough that they like can just have something come out of their mouth before they fully thought it through, but still making choices that um, allow them to play like thoughtful, kind, smart characters right because like it's not fun to play a bigoted character Uh, i you know so it's 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 only fun to bigots what'd you say it's only fun to bigots to play a bigoted character right but i'm not even (laughs) sure it is fun for bigots i don't know i guess (laughs) we we don't we will never know um but i think like it is more it is more fun to play characters who are open to each other who are excited Mm -hmm. about like what they're doing who you know not that we all have to be like super sweethearts in all of our scene. Um, but I think we, you know, it's more fun to play characters who respect each other and who like listen to each other. Uh, and so I think, you know, you can tackle this from like many, many angles basically. So it's not, you should not say this, but it's like, it's actually a better choice to not do this. Yeah. I appreciate everything you're saying. Uh, speaking of your classroom, uh, in, in teaching level one, girlfriend of the show justina is a big sib for <laughs> one of your classes right now she's amazing <laughs> yeah she, I love uh, her. yeah i'm glad um <laughs> i love her too uh for people who don't know uh, a big sib at magnet is someone who has gone through the classes and is there to help facilitate uh, and take notes and engage the students out of class outside of class um and uh, that's what Jacina's doing for you right now, which is a great thing uh, to have in a room, I imagine. 
because uh, you, I guess you can always sort of rely on that person <laughs> to, to help you uh, get something across with the exercise. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And also for transparency, uh, as I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but um, I'm on a megawatt team that uh, joined the theater while you were the megawatt director. So, mm-hmm. um, but you're not currently the megawatt director. Which no. is was sad uh, for yeah. for us, but uh, for all of us. Um, but uh, I just mention it to say any uh, nice things I say about you are said uh, not because you're the current magnet uh, megawatt director. <laughs> it's just because I believe it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's very nice. How so? Transitioning into that, you had that role for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, how how did you transition into? Uh, a role like that and and what are the differences between teaching and directing um great questions so i'll tackle the first one first the differences between teaching and directing are multiple and significant um i think in in directing and again like everybody has approached megawatt directing slightly differently um but i sort of uh took on more of a like I thought of the coaches of each team as sort of like, like let's, I'm thinking about this in terms of like a company, Mm -hmm. right? That like those people were my direct reports in a way and that they were then like giving feedback to the people that they coached. Um, Because I think it can be, having been on Megawatt at various times, like I think it can be confusing and overwhelming as a performer on Megawatt to be getting notes from your coach and from the Megawatt director. Um, Because sometimes those notes will align, sometimes they won't align. It's not that one is right or one is wrong, but, um, you know, I I think it's most helpful as an individual, like in any situation, to be getting feedback from like primarily one person or, or one channel. And so what I tried to do as Megawatt director is like, you know, there were teams that I noted directly um, after their shows because like their coach couldn't be there. So I feel like sweetheart was one of those teams where I like would note you guys often. Um, but, uh, I'm, my preference is always to like give my notes to the coach. Hmm. Um, so to say like, Hey Lewis, who was the coach of sweetheart for a long time. And I guess still is, um, you know, like this is a, this is something that I'm seeing happen a lot on sweetheart or like this is some way that i would like them to shift their form or whatever it is um i didn't do this very much because i think sweetheart has been has done great i love sweetheart um if i if i have those notes like i'd rather give them to the coach and have the coach decide for themselves how best to um how best to like action those notes whether they want to like give the feedback directly to the team or or choose sort of like what exercises they want to run or like how they want to modify the form so I think it's really important to have coaches you trust and like coaches who you think are really capable and whose opinions are great. And uh, so that's what I tried to do as Megawatt director is just like make sure that all the teams had awesome coaches that I like trusted to um, both like use their own best judgment in in helping that team, but also um, like partner with me on uh, like figuring out the right choices and be open to like my perspective, having seen these, these teams every week. So I don't know how that answered your question. No, no, it does. I think, I think that's great. Um, and also just to for clarity for people who, because I know there's some people who aren't even in improv who are listening. There are just just so people know the teams are put together from a certain perspective of 
uh, this is the sort of approach I think this team can have. Like there is an, at least with us, yeah. um, there was a, a, a kind of outcome in mind in putting us together. Like for us, it was this team sort of plays real, like authentic kind of emotions and, and plays people as real people. So let's have a team that is doing that. Totally. Um, and that's kind of how all the teams are cast, or and, at least... Um, Certainly that's what I have tried to do or what I tried to do when I was Megawatt director. And I think that's actually one of the reasons, and I don't know because I've never been a part of this at another theater, but I think that's one of the ways that Magnet is really special is that like our team of, like our house team night features eight teams and we have a musical house unit as well, which is, you know, its own thing. But um, like Megawatt has eight teams who all, have totally different styles. They don't all do the same form. Um, they play really differently. Like Sweetheart is a team, as you've said, that, um, yeah, these are like really interesting, real three-dimensional characters sort of um, in various different like situations where we can see all the different sides of those characters. Um, that's going to be a super different team than, say, like Metal Boy, which is <laughs> the team of Megawatt that plays like really, really fast, really silly. Um, they're wild. <laughs> one is not better than the other. They're right. just like two super different styles of improv. And I love that about the Magnet that like we mm-hmm. are. I think that's what makes the Magnet as a school special and different. And as a theater is like we're not trying to say here's the one way to do good improv. Um, we're trying to say, and I think like the way you are going to do your best improv is different from the way I'm going to do my best improv. It's different from the way anyone will. And we want to help like you become the the best version of you, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like trying to shape you or mold you to some sort of like ideal improviser that we've created. And I think Megawatt is a, is a night that where you can really see that, that like mm-hmm. these are all people who've gone through the magnet training program, but they still have their own really distinct styles. Yeah, and I—that I, is one of the things that I also love about about Magnet because there are all these different perspectives that you get, and also just styles. And it's it's okay. super fun to see that variety um, uh, in a show, in a night of shows. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this from a performer perspective for you, because Magnet does try to cultivate people in, into being the best kind of performer they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, you're acknowledging the differences, the way people might approach it. You are on uh, a team now that performs every week that, I mean, it's basically based on uh, form because it's the Armando Diaz experience. So you're you're doing the Armando, but you're doing it with people who are going to be different from uh, you. How, mm-hmm. as a performer in a team dynamic, uh, do you uh, kind of have cohesion? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the Armando is like a really interesting example of that the cohesion pretty much comes from the form, right? Mm-hmm. Like the cohesion comes from the fact that we all know what format we're doing. We all know like how to uh, call a monologue for different ideas. And, um, and we all sort of get on board with the same structure. We may be coming with different styles, but I don't think it's problematic. It's, it just means that as an improviser, like you, I know that if I, get into a scene with Rick, it's going to be different than if I get into a scene with Ilana, than if I get into a scene with Anna New. Like, those are all going to feel 
these I'm mentioning people that are all great magnet and Verizon. Oh, yeah. um, but those they all have different styles, right? So they're all going to be slightly different scenes, and um, it's just about being present and being able to, you know, it, it the same way that like if I enter an an improv scene, I don't know what you're going to say to me. Like I don't know the context that you're going to create, or you know the choices you're going to make and what you're going to verbal verbally say. Um, you're sort of flexing the same muscle by being like, I don't know necessarily what style this person is going to bring, mm-hmm. um, but I have to be present and be able to still like respond and react. Um, and when you do play with the same people over a long time, even if I don't have, even if like we don't have a ton of sort of stylistic overlap, you start to anticipate the kind of choices that they're going to make. And mm-hmm. I think like it's part of the reason that rehearsing is helpful because you start to like learn how to play with different types of improvisers. And again, this kind of goes back to your something I said earlier that your previous performance experience must inform a lot of things uh, as a performer for you. Uh, How has playing piano informed you as a performer now or does it, you know, is it something that is more seeped in so much that you don't see a direct connection? It's probably something that has seeped in so much that I don't see a yeah. total connection. But I mean, I I think piano like taught me so much and I feel like it um, it taught me like diligence and the importance of like practicing, which I think sometimes you can miss in improv because you like don't have to prepare and practice in the same way. Um, but having been a really like serious piano player, um, you know, I think I like learned the importance not just of practicing like the piece that you're working on, but also like practicing scales and learning theory and like um, doing all these sort of drills to like exercise your fingers in different ways that, Mm -hmm. you know, I think like from a very young age, I saw the value of trying to like practice to be as multi sort of capable uh, um, or to like keep sort of everything. um, I don't know what I'm saying. Like practicing beyond just the immediate sort of, um, result of your of what you're working on, and I think like that's something that you you could sort of miss in improv, but that makes me a better improviser. Mm. Have you played piano since? On and off. I don't have a piano right now, but I keep like having on my. I did have a piano. I sold it. I sort of. Um, I love piano. I deeply. I love piano. I I think one of the things that was always hard and continues to be hard about it for me is like I'm extremely extroverted um and mm-hmm. so spending like hours by myself like playing something or practicing something is not doesn't usually make me very happy it's yeah. part of the reason why like improv is so fun because you are you're practicing with other people right uh, so it like still feels social and so I think that's always that has been like a challenge for me with piano um but I would really like to get back into it I just need to actually like find the time to <laughs> to play wow i'd love to hear you play um but no pressure uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i was you know i was starting to think maybe doing improv and and other things has sort of satisfied that need that you were getting originally from piano so maybe it, you know it makes sense that maybe you weren't aren't doing that as much as yeah, you were one time. i mean I want to do all the things all the yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> I want to have so much more time in my day to like dance and play piano and write and do improv um, and act and all these things. Uh, but given the fact that I can't do all of them, improv has been a really nice like sort of 
like home base for me as an artist and a performer. Um, and I've gotten to do like a bunch of different, like I've done improv shows that are much more dance based, like the show that I created and was directing until quite recently where I sort of have taken a step back is the show, the cast. And at first the cast was a show where we did a different genre every single week. So like we had a weekly show and we would predetermine the genre and I would sort of plan a uh, rehearsal for that genre and then they would do it once. So in that we got to do musicals, we got to do dance shows, we got to do more like theatrical, like we, we did shows that were based on different playwrights. So I feel like that was a show that really got to like scratch a bunch of my sort of creative itches, if you will. It sounds so gross. <laughs> um, like I got to do like, I got to use music and dance and like I have a theater a more sort of like traditional theater background and I got to use some of that. And so that was a way that like improv could sort of build on all these other things that I also like to do. I'm interested in how you would define yourself as a performer, as an improviser. Like what is it you think your style or approach is? How do you see that? God, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, it's interesting because also like I, I just started a new job a few months ago, apart, you know, outside of improv. It's been like a very busy few months. And I feel like my improv is sort of like suffering as a result. Like I just am not feeling quite as like fun and, and funny and like natural, which is fine. I think that it doesn't upset me as much because I know I sort of see my improv journey on like a wider scope because I'm right. doing it for something, but like. This could be I a season. Yeah, it doesn't freak me out that I'm sort of going through like a little bit of a slump. Um, But I think as a result, it's hard for I'm sort of feeling like I'm trying to figure out trying to like get back on track as an improviser myself right now. But more sort of historically, I think my style tends to be um, well, you know, sorry, this is a long answer. But basically, (laughs) I was on a team for a long time, like a house team called the music industry for a long time. Mm -hmm. That was very like not my style prior to that. So I would say like prior to that team, I felt much more like a grounded player where I was like playing really grounded scenes and bringing like emotion to my characters and that that was sort of my style. And then for years, I was on like the stupidest, silliest, dirtiest team. I love them so much. We uh, are no longer a team, but like those shows you know like there's there was no space in those shows for someone to like come in and be a patient grounded mm-hmm. uh, like truthful player they were like really wacky heightened um, <laughs> totally like ridiculous shows and so I was you know I think I played with them for so long that like my style shifted sort of and I I like was still able to ground things. I probably played a more like grounding role among the other players on that team, but I would also make choices that were like really absurd and uh, huge and big. And so, you know, that was my style then for a long time. And I think like coming off of that team, now I'm trying to like figure out what my what my style is sort of like independent of a team. Because like you said, I am playing in this weekly show, but it's more it's more of a sort of um, mixed ensemble, like people, you're not playing with the same people every single week. Right. I'm trying to find like my, um, like what I like doing, what I feel like I'm good at doing, sort of apart from the identity of being on the music industry. Yeah, that must be a really interesting perspective to have because yeah, you were performing twice a week when the music industry was going, which just recently that Mm -hmm. night changed. And, um, yeah, that would really be something to go through. Uh, you know, yeah. like a, that's there's a lot to to think about and process. I mean, one of the things that is fun about the Armando Diaz show is that there are these 
totally different kinds of players who totally. are making choices. And then, you know, you have one scene that is one kind of style and the very next scene is a completely different kind of style and then it all comes together somehow at the end in some beautiful magical improv way but it is so cool that there are all these different perspectives but you know if you feel like who you are as a performer is has shifted uh then yeah i can see that being tough to figure out how to go forward with that Yeah. And I think it's always been a challenge for me that I've like continued to tackle in multiple ways over the course of my life as an improviser. Um, but I think it's something that has one thing that's been challenging for me over time is like really feeling confident in my own choices and my own style, as opposed to feeling like I have to shift to accommodate someone else's style. Even like in scenes, I tend to favor like lower status characters who are more agreeable and Uh, who will go along with the other person's thing. And so I think I'm just in a phase where I have to sort of like do that again um, as a, as a, in terms of my style of improv and sort of figure out like, okay, what am I bringing to the scene as opposed to like, how am I going to adapt to the other person in the scene? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, looking at the time, we have reached the end of the episode, unfortunately, (laughs) because there's so much more that we could talk about. But uh, we've talked a lot about coaching, and that is something that eventually I would like to do. So I guess the thing we could quote-unquote create at the end of the episode this time is maybe sort of a a logical plan or next steps to being prepared and ready to uh, coach. Because I know I coach back home, and I've said this on the podcast before, much to Justina's chagrin. But um, I feel like I was uh, like after coming here, I was like, oh, I was not a good teacher or coach. (laughs) But, you know, you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I do want to get to a place where I feel like I can do it on uh, on the level of uh, people are. Well, I shouldn't say on the level because it would take so many years for me to get to the level of like a you or Lewis or somebody. But if I do want to get into the vein of coaching uh, uh, that I would like to get to, what are good steps? Obviously, there are classes at Magnet for this, but outside of taking those uh, uh, coaching classes, what sort of advice would you have for someone in that position? So, oh my God, there are so many things. I, I would say one thing is like coaching is this weird thing where you have to get better at it in front of other people. Mm. (laughs) Like you can't go like squirrel away in your own room and like try to become an amazing coach and then present yourself as a coach to the world and suddenly be fantastic. Like it is one of those things that you got to try and like you will spend a few years, maybe not a few years, but like you will sort of spend time making like sort of mistakes is not the great right way to put it but like doing things as a coach where you're like well I'm not sure that worked as well or like I'm not sure I had an answer to this question or um, I'm not sure like I really knew what to do when this came up in a in a scene or in a rehearsal and the only way you get good at that is by doing it Mm -hmm. and so like my recommendation to new coaches is often just like coach as much as possible Um, like if you have time in your schedule like try to make it known that you want to coach um, and, you know, and, and try to do as much of it as you can, because like that is your best teacher. And I think especially like, you know, if you're willing to be present and look at, look at like how everything went after each sort of time you've coached, um, you can learn really fast that way. Um, 
you know, especially if you're approaching it with an attitude that is like not perfectionistic <laughs> and like not, you know, like d- know that you're not going to be perfect from the very beginning and that no one is ever perfect, but that you're sort of trying to learn along the way. Um, I think like reach out to coaches who you respect. Like I know when I was first coaching a lot, that's what I did. I like found coaches and teachers that I'd had that I really loved and I, you know, got coffee with them and like asked them a bunch of questions about like pretty specific things and, you know, sort of philosophical things about coaching, but also like, what's a good exercise for this? Or like, what's a good exercise for that? How to structure, um, coaching sessions. Um, yeah. So I think like those are, you know, those are sort of my two maybe broad pieces of advice, but like do it as much as you can with the attitude and the expectation that like, you're going to get better the more you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like ask, ask people who you already think are great. Oh, and I guess the third piece would be like, trust yourself and trust your instincts. Like you are a valuable coach, um, because you're an outside perspective Mm -hmm. watching a scene. Um, and you have a wealth of experience that you can draw from. You don't have to be like, I know for me, it was hard at first. I felt like I how could I coach someone if I wasn't like a perfect improviser? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, well, I make that mistake too. So who am I to tell you that you made this mistake or that you like that this might've, you know, worked differently. But I think like you are still able to provide really, really helpful feedback to people, even if it's something that like you yourself are still working on or are still like find difficult. And so, um, I think like really trusting that you have value to offer is was helpful for me. Awesome. Uh, and I just have one ran- one last random question. Well, not yeah. super random, but that dynamic of being a coach, teacher, director, and a performer on a team, mm-hmm. um, how do you turn your brain off when you're just like on the team and not like, like how do you take off the director hat when you're on the team so that you don't end up noting? Because that's a, you know, a teammate should not note their teammates. How right. do you like manage that part and put that those thoughts aside and just be there as a performer? Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two small things. One is just like being as present as possible in the work that you're doing, um, and you know that certainly takes time. But like really trying to focus on the scene that I'm in and the person that I'm performing with, you know, playing with, rather than like having that sort of a, a more like view. Um, of like what's going on in the scene and what's going well in the scene. And the other thing is like a thing that I, you know, intentionally come to rehearsals with, which is like, this is not my work. Like I'm not running this rehearsal. This coach is running the rehearsal. And I, I do like trust and value their opinion. And it's going to maybe sometimes be different from mine, but like, this is not the time where I need to use my brain in that way. Like this is the time where I need to learn from them. And this is the time where I need to like try new things as a player. And so Um, yeah, I think it is just like coming to that, um, prepared to trust the person who, who was in charge in that moment. And, um, that usually isn't hard because usually like great people are, are running rehearsals. Um, and, and I, I think that like most people can offer, can offer value and I'm always excited to learn from other coaches. So I think that's sort of coming like with the preparedness to, to have that attitude. Excellent. There it is. Thank you so much for being here, Hannah. Oh, man, thank you so much. I hope I didn't, like, talk too much. No, you were perfect. (laughs) (laughs) You were perfect. This was great. 
she was great, wasn't she? So awesome. Very, very thankful that she gave us her wisdom and time, and I hope you gained a lot from that. It was a really big get for me because I've, I've wanted her to be on the podcast for probably about two years now, and I finally got around to asking her, and um, we made it work, and that was really great for me. I hope you enjoyed listening to that and you found it edifying. Now, did I use the word edifying correctly? Well, yes, I did. But did I use the word malleable correctly? It's time to find out if I'm getting smarter after using the Elevate app for over a year. <laughs> uh, let's see. All right, here's the context in which I used the word. You really can't speak in absolutes when improv is something that's so malleable. Meaning, this is what I was trying to say there, essentially, was that the style or approach that you take can change how improv is performed, so you can't really say what is right or wrong. How it's done is all dependent on the approach that you take. So that's what I am meaning, that it's something improv itself can change to fit the performer and their approach. So here's the definition of malleable. Malleable is adaptable or tractable. That's from dictionary.com. Or this definition from Merriam-Webster, capable of being altered or controlled by outside forces or influences and having a capacity for adaptive change. Yes, I did it. I used it correctly. Hooray. I'm not a complete idiot. Though I did do this. So I am still a complete idiot. Okay, well... I'm still an idiot because I went through this exercise. <laughs> well, you can follow Hannah on Twitter at Hannah the Chase and on Instagram at Hannah Chase Chase. Links in bio. You can also check out what she's up to. You can go to magnettheater.com and look for her and, and see what shows she's got coming up. She should be in a Mondo Diaz experience if you're here on a Saturday. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod and me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. So check me out. I've, I've noticed I've gotten some new followers recently, and I'm always like, why are people following me? And then I realize I tell people every week to follow me. So thank you for following. I'm just always surprised when stuff happens. Like I met someone, really funny lady the other day. She's performing in the team performance workshop at Magnet. And she told me that she listens to the podcast. I was like, what? People are doing that? So thank you for listening. It's not just friends of mine who are listening it's also complete strangers thank you for listening and for the follow we've got another great guest coming up next week until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by neil brooks the rap was written and performed by nick acevedo the logo for there it is was created by jeff prater the there it is podcast is produced by jason farr 